Morning, Gospel City. My name is Mitch Helmkamp. I have the privilege of being the pastor of theological development here at Gospel City, and it's a privilege uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. So open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and while you turn, I'm going to begin by making an obvious statement that our world is full of brokenness. This is heavy, but the reality is we have a world that is full of wars and rumors of wars. Our world has kidnapping and murder, human trafficking and abortion, hurricanes and earthquakes, famines and disease. And a lot of that is just brokenness that we know of out there because of the news. But there's also a lot of brokenness that hits a lot closer to home. There's brokenness in our families, brokenness in our marriage, our marriages, brokenness in our bodies, our physical bodies are broken, brokenness in our communication, and ultimately brokenness in our hearts. There's brokenness in what we desire and and what we believe and therefore what we do. Everywhere we look, there's brokenness. The passage we're going to look at today is going to explain why, why the world is full of so much brokenness. And the answer it gives is because of sin. The world is broken because of sin. Genesis 3 records the first sin of our first parents, which is like a fountain from which all evil and all suffering and all brokenness flows. And it's been gushing ever since that sin. But by God's grace, Genesis 3 is not all bad news. It doesn't just explain why the world is broken. It also gives us hope that one day the good world that God created will be unbroken, will be fixed, will be redeemed, will be rescued. So with that, look down at Genesis 3. We're going to start in verse 14. If you've been with us, you know that God created a good world. He created Adam and Eve in his image to reflect his glory the way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, exercising dominion on his behalf over his creation. But as we saw last week, instead of ruling the world on behalf of God, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to rule the world instead of God. This talking snake shows up and tempts them to break the one command that God gave them. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, therefore joining the serpent in his cosmic rebellion against the good and glorious and holy creator God of the universe. So we have the serpent, the woman, and the man all guilty before creator God. That's where we left off last week. So our passage today is how God responds to them. How God responds after confirming that man has sinned. Starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, what we read here is tragic. What we read here is heavy. Lord, the good world you created has been marred by sin. Out of your goodness and grace you created and out of sin man rebelled against you and we have been rebelling against you ever since. So Lord, as we consider why the world is full of brokenness, and as we consider your amazing grace, that there is hope that one day the world will be good again, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, help us to consider the sinfulness of sin and the amazing nature of your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, <clears throat> so through our time together, I want us to see that this right here is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. I mean, there is so much we could say from this passage. I mean, there is so much that, in the way that this passage shapes our worldview, the way we interpret sin, the way we interpret evil. There's so much about this passage that really sets up the way that we read the rest of the Bible. There's so much we could say. But I want to make four observations and then we're going to close with one exhortation. So if you're ready, say ready. ready. All right. Observation number one. God's judgment on sin is calculated and just. God's judgment on sin is calculated and just. So here in Genesis 3, there are three guilty parties. There's the serpent, there's the woman, and there's the man. And God responds, the passage we just read, is God's response to each of the guilty parties with his word of judgment. And as we're going to see, his judgment is very calculated, it's not random, and it's very just. The, the punishment fits the crime. So first, let's consider what he says to the serpent. And if you remember from last week, this is not just any serpent, this is a talking serpent. This is a serpent who is more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God has made. And Pastor Micah helped us see that later biblical authors help us see that this isn't just a serpent. This is none other than Satan himself, the devil. So looking at verse 14, the Lord God said to that serpent, because you have done this. Now what is this? What did, what did the serpent do? 
Well, essentially, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to do the very same thing that he did. Because if you think about it, God created Satan to be a worship leader in heaven. And yet, instead of wanting to give glory to God, Satan wanted to be God. And that got him kicked out of heaven. That led to his ruin. And all the rest of the rebel angels who followed him got kicked out of heaven. And then Satan shows up in the garden. And because that worked out so well for him in his total depravity, tempts Adam and Eve to do the very same thing. I mean, Adam and Eve were created to be worship leaders. They're created in God's image as king priests. And Satan shows up in the garden and says, hey, why don't you try to be like God? Here's a way you could be like God. God just doesn't want you to be like God. Adam and Eve fall for the temptation, and as a result, humanity is ruined, and they are kicked out of the garden, just like Satan was kicked out of heaven. So how does God respond to what the serpent did? With a punishment that fits the crime. Look down at verse 14. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts. So the serpent goes from the most crafty to the most cursed. And God says, On your belly you shall go. So the the serpent goes from so prideful, so high that he thinks he could be God, to so low and humiliated that he's literally slithering on his belly. And God says, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So eating dust is a phrase used throughout the Bible to describe total defeat. The serpent tried to overthrow God and, and ruin his plan for humanity. And in response, he is going to suffer total ruin, total defeat. He's going to eat dust all the days of his life. And just, just consider, I mean, how is, how is it going to happen? How is, how is he going to suffer this defeat? So look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we're going to say a lot more on this verse later. But right now just notice the word bruise. Other translations say crush or, or strike. So the, the word has the idea of violently shattering. So God is promising that one day an offspring of the woman, a a child of this woman, is going to violently shatter the head of the serpent. So get this, the serpent's temptation brought ruin for the human race, and in return, God says that Satan is going to be ruined, how? By a member of the human race. This is a punishment that fits the crime. God's judgment on the serpent is calculated and just. Now the man and the woman, they're not innocent victims in the situation. They have judgment coming to them as well. So let's consider what God says to the woman. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So if you remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the man and woman, he he blesses them and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to have lots of babies and fill the earth with kids. And in in chapter 2, he he gives uh, the man, his wife, as a helper and and blesses the, the covenant union of marriage. And so these two aspects of blessing, the ability to have children and marriage, which is the building block of life, is directly correlated to God's judgment on the woman. 
So if you look back at verse 16, God's judgment is very related to these two aspects of blessing. Women can still have children, but it is tainted by sin. In a fallen world, childbirth is painful because of miscarriage and infertility and death. And it's physically painful from beginning to end. And marriage is, is tainted by divorce and abuse and abandonment and miscommunication. So why is this God's judgment on the woman? Well, if you remember from last week at the beginning of uh, chapter 3, if um, she, the way that the, the fall happened, the way that the sin happened, is she usurped her role as the helper. And rather than helping her husband, she led her husband into sin. And likewise, her husband was a, a bad leader. Rather than protecting his wife, rather than leading them well, he just followed her into sin. And so as a result, God declares that from this point on, in sin, wives will be bad followers. Their desire will be contrary to their husbands in their sin. And in their sin, at their worst, husbands will be bad leaders. Rather than protecting and cherishing and, and, and loving and providing for his wife, they will just rule with the cruel dominion. That is not how it's supposed to go. So a broken marriage led to the fall. Broken marriages are the result of the fall. And ever since, brokenness in our marriages is a reminder of the sinfulness of sin. God's judgment on the woman is calculated and just. The punishment fits the crime. And the same is true for the man. If you look at verse 17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So remember, God had given the man the good world to work and to keep, and he had given every tree to him for food. But now, the good world that God had given was, is now cursed. Adam sinned by eating of the tree he was not supposed to eat from, and as a result, it will now require pain and toil and sweat just to eat. And ever since then, men have had to endure sweat and pain just to put food on the table. And the pain of work and the pain of living just paycheck to paycheck is just a reminder of the sinfulness of sin. And this is justice. justice. This is punishment that fits the crime. And consider verse 19. It's going to be this way until they die. Till they return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return, God says. So remember, God warned them in chapter 2 that if you're free to eat of every tree, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat it, you will surely die. And here God says, because you ate of it, you're going to die. You're going to return to dust. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And every day in our world, people die. Our world is full of death. And death is a reminder of the sinfulness of sin. And yet here's the greatest irony of it all. Adam and Eve thought that by eating this fruit, they would become like God. And yet, what did it do? Eating the fruit didn't make them like God. Eating that forbidden food just made them food for the serpent. Because the serpent is the one who eats dust. So if we consider God's judgment on the serpent, the woman, and the man, we must conclude that this is very calculated and very just. 
I mean, Satan led ruin on the, the human race, and therefore he's going to be ruined by a member of the human race. Eve led her husband into sin, and therefore the marriage union will suffer from brokenness. And Adam sinned by eating the fruit, and therefore all the days of his life he is going to eat in pain and toil and sweat. God's judgment on sin is not random. It's calculated and just. Observation number two, God's judgment on sin is comprehensively devastating. So if we we just take a step back and look at Genesis 3 as a whole, we see that the effects of sin are comprehensively devastating. There is brokenness in every direction. Starting with man's vertical relationship with God. And Adam and Eve have sinned against God by breaking the one law that God gave them. The one law. And in response, as, as God is confronting Adam and Eve, Adam literally blames God for it. He's like, the wife that you gave me, gave me the fruit. Then we see in verse 24, God kicks Adam and Eve out of his presence, out of the garden, puts a big keep out sign in the form of these angel warriors with flaming, spinning swords. As one of my son's books says, because of your sin, you can't come in. That's what that means. And so in the Bible, separation from God is, is the equivalent of spiritual death because God is the giver of life and if you're cut off from the source of life equals death Adam and Eve did not physically die the day they sinned but they died spiritually and their spiritual death inevitably led to their physical death from this point on in human history man's relationship with God is broken But it's not just vertical. The vertical brokenness results in horizontal brokenness as well. So man's relationship with each other is also broken. I mean, this is clear. Eve literally invites her husband into sin. That was not a great decision. Then Adam throws her under the bus when God confronts them. It's like, it was her fault. She's the one who gave me the fruit. And we haven't even looked at Genesis 3.15 yet, where it explains how there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So Enmity means war, like irreconcilable war, enmity. So as a result, there's going to be these two groups of people who are in constant conflict for the rest of the history of mankind. So from this point on, man's relationship with each other is clearly broken. And lastly, man's internal relationship, like man's, it's not just brokenness out there, it's brokenness in here. Adam and Eve sinned and, and we're naked and ashamed, which represents so much more than just physical guilt or physical shame. It represents an internal guilt and shame that torments the human race, that we just know we are guilty. We know that we are not enough. So this is, that's not just effects of sin out there. That is, in, that, is, that is the core of our being. It is inward and personal. I mean, sin made Adam and Eve so delusional that they thought they could hide from God. And, and so here's why all this is so important. The brokenness is, is not limited to Adam and Eve. What makes Adam and Eve's sin so comprehensively devastating is that the effects of sin have spread to every single human and every square inch of the universe. Because every human has experienced brokenness with God, 
brokenness with each other and an inward brokenness of the heart. One commentator puts it this way, the woman and the man are not depicted as individuals involved in personal crisis. Rather, they are representatives. This is not just their story. This is our story, the story of humankind. So this is why the effects of of the fall are so comprehensively devastating. Because every sin, every act of evil, every war, every abortion, every cancer diagnosis, every divorce, every death, all flow from the fountain of this first sin. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. This first sin is the fountain from which all suffering and evilness and and brokenness flows. God's judgment on sin is is comprehensive and, and devastating. And so Gospel City, this passage should make us tremble at the sinfulness of sin. The brokenness of this world is screaming at us every day that God is holy and sin is awful. And yet in our sin, we minimize our sin. We excuse our sin. We flirt with sin. We watch sin on TV and call it entertainment. In our sin, it, 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 our, we are so sinful that we're numb to the effects of sin. I mean, even my two-year-old, when he touches the hot stove, he knows because of the consequences, he's not going to touch that again. And yet, in our sin, we sin, reap the consequences, and keep sinning. Because our sin has, is so comprehensively devastating. And yet, if we only knew the sinfulness of sin, we would tremble more and sin less. Sin is comprehensively devastating. And yet, observation number three. God's judgment on sin is seasoned with grace. Or a better word might be drenched. I mean, this passage is dripping with God's grace. As I studied this passage throughout the week, I, I just expected, like, okay, sin, sin, sin. This is going to be a dark week. And it certainly was. I was certainly struck by the sinfulness of sin. But to my surprise, I was struck even more by the abundance of God's grace. I mean, this passage is glowing with God's grace. I mean, by God's grace, God created a good world full of trees and animals and sunshine. By God's grace, he created Adam and Eve in his image to reflect his glory. By God's grace, he blessed Adam and Eve and invited them to have dominion over the creation that he created. And by God's grace, he gave every tree to Adam and Eve to eat. And by God's grace, he warned them of the one tree they can't eat from. And that warning itself is grace. And what did Adam and Eve do? How do they respond to all that grace? They break the one command he gave them. And this is why verse 8 says they're hiding, because Adam and Eve thought they were going to die. And so they've broken the one command, and God says, if you break this command, you're going to die. And so verse 14, we should be reading verse 14 with a lot of suspense. I mean, you would think that this is the end of the Bible. You would think this is the end of the human race. You would think that verse 14 would say, the Lord God said, Adam and Eve, you're dead. The end. End of Bible, end of human history. But by God's grace, that's not what happens. 
If you look at verse 14, God tells the serpent, he's, he's, I mean, they don't, God doesn't even talk to Adam and Eve first. He talks to the serpent first. And he says, you're going to eat dust. Your end is total ruin. And then in verse 15, he says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. And so if you think about it, I mean, the serpent is right there. God's talking to him. But Adam and Eve would be right there because they're next. And they're listening. And, and so they think they're dead. They think that they're going to die. And yet they hear God tell the serpent, hey, there's going to be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And Adam and Eve are like, what? I, I thought we were going to die. How are we going to have children? You can't have children when you're dead. So not only is, is our Adam and Eve realizing that they're going to live to see another day, they're going to live long enough to have kids. And not only are they going to live to have kids, the human race is going to survive. Well, this is grace. This is grace upon grace. And if you look at the last phrase of verse 15, God says to the serpent, of one of the offspring of the woman, he's going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel. Remember, bruise means crush or violently shatter. So this is a promise that one day a human child will crush the head of the snake. And when you cut off the head of the snake, everything dies. And so this is a, a poetic way of saying the implication is that when, when the snake dies, when the snake is crushed, the rebellion is crushed and everything with it. The crushing of the snake and his rebellion will then reverse the curse of sin and death. The creation will be redeemed and restored. So theologians call this the first gospel. This is the first time in the Bible that we have uh, 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 an inkling of the gospel. And so remember, Adam and Eve are listening to all of this. They deserve judgment. Judgment is coming to them. They haven't even been spoken to yet. And in, as God is talking to the serpent, their sinful ears that deserve judgment, that deserve death, hear the gospel. Hear the first gospel. God, it is the first time that sin is confirmed. God, the first words that come out of God's mouth is the gospel. I mean, if that's not God's character, I mean, that is, that is amazing. This is grace upon grace. God's judgment on the serpent is the gospel. And the grace continues. If you look at God's judgment to the woman and the man, he doesn't say, cursed are you. God curses the serpent, and he curses the ground. He doesn't curse the man or the woman. So God blessed them in chapter 1. And even though their sin, they should have ruined everything, he doesn't undo that blessing by cursing them. His plan for humanity is tainted by sin. Now it's full of pain and sin will mar things, but it is not completely ruined. God has not abandoned his plan for humanity. He blessed them and he does not curse them despite their sin. That is grace. And the grace continues. If you look at verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve... Why? Because she was the mother of all living. Because Adam believed that life would come from her. So this means that God gave Adam the grace to believe the gospel. Adam believed that life would come through the offspring of the woman. He believed the promise in chapter 3, verse 15. I mean, this is amazing. You would think Adam and Eve just joined the serpent. They just sinned with him. They just did what he wanted them to do. You would think that they would then now be aligned against God with the serpent. And yet the promise is there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman. There's going to be enmity between his offspring and her offspring. So this is a promise that ultimately Adam and Eve side with God by grace. They believed the gospel. 
The grace continues. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So, by God's grace, he covered their sin and their shame and their nakedness. And if you remember from last week, or chapter, they, they sin and they, they cover themselves with these fig leaves. And yet God says, no, that, that's not sufficient. And yet instead of killing them like they deserved, he kills something else in their place and covers their sin and their shame. Does that sound familiar? So don't, don't get me wrong. God is holy and will by no means clear the guilty. Adam and Eve are not just getting off without a punishment. But looking at Genesis 3, his judgment on sin is seasoned with so much grace. And so Gospel City, I don't know what trials you're going through. I don't know what pain and brokenness you're bringing into the room this morning. And the brokenness of this world can just hit us like a Mack truck out of nowhere in different ways, in different seasons. And yet whatever you're going through, do not doubt the character of our God. He is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this, this passage, I mean, if you're reading chapter 3, you might be asking, like, why does, God even, why, does, why does God even give them the command that they could break? Why does God put the tree right there? Why does God let the serpent come into the garden? Why does God banish the serpent to some distant galaxy? Why did God, like, couldn't have God stopped the fall? Well, of course he could have. And yet, God as creator gets glory, God as savior gets more glory. And we learn from Ephesians 1 that in Christ, God chose us before the foundation of the world. So God created the world knowing that he would have to send his son to save the world that had fallen. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace so that we can praise him because he who has forgiven much loves much. And so our response as we look at chapter three is yes, we see the sinfulness of sin but we also marvel at God's amazing grace. And God responds to sin with the gospel. It's just on his lips. He's just ready for it. Sin happens, and then he declares the gospel. I mean, he was ready to the praise of his glorious grace. Lastly, observation number four. Genesis 3.15 shapes the plot line of the entire Bible. So, We've said that Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel. It's the first hint of the gospel. And really, theologians call this like an acorn. Genesis 3.15 is like an acorn that grows and grows and grows throughout the whole story of the Bible until it becomes the massive, substantial oak tree that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is our last observation, but I just want to say, Buckle your seatbelt because it's verses like these that, that just make your heart sing. This, surely this is the word of God. Surely this book is divine. So let's read the verse again. I mean, it's worth reading again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So just for clarification, this is, this is the offspring of the serpent is not referring to literal snakes. This is not talking about snakes versus humans. Uh, this is not a biblical justification for hating snakes, uh, even though that would be a good idea. 
Um, this is talking about humans who align with the serpent in rebelling against God and his promises and his ways and his purposes. And th therefore, their rebellion against God means they have enmity with God's chosen people who align with him and hope in his promises. And later, later biblical authors confirm this interpretation. The Apostle John in, in 1 John 3, is, is, he says this. He calls Cain the, the offspring of the serpent. So if you remember in Genesis 4, the next chapter, Adam and Eve have kids, Cain, who kills Abel. And this is what John says about him. He says, by this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil, or who are the offspring of the serpent. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Therefore, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, who was an offspring of the serpent, and murdered his brother. And this is not John just making up an interpretation. Moses intends for us to read Genesis 4 as Cain being an offspring of the serpent, because the same phrase that God says to the serpent, cursed are you, is the exact same way that God responds to Cain once he kills Abel. Cursed are you, Cain. Jesus calls people the, the seed of the serpent as well, not snakes. He's, he refers to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning, just like Cain, just like the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. And John the Baptist even calls people the seed of the serpent when he's like, you brood of vipers. Well, that's an insult, saying you're offspring of the serpent, even though you think you are aligned with God's people. So this passage is not about snakes versus humans. It's about people who align with Satan versus people who align with God and hope in his promises. And the Bible, and really all of human history, is telling the story of this great conflict. But, with that said, the concern, the real question of Genesis 3.15 is not, as, not who are the offspring of the serpent. The question is, who is the offspring of the woman? And notice, the author is not concerned with offspring plural. He, this is a prophecy about one singular offspring. So look at that last phrase. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, this should leave readers asking, who, who is this seed of the woman? Who is the promised offspring who will come and slay the serpent once and for all? Who is the promised savior who will reverse the curse of sin and death? Who is this man, this human offspring, this, this one born of woman and yet has the power to overcome that ancient serpent? And, and who is this man who will be able to do what Adam failed to do? Will be able to do what every other human in the history of the world has failed to do? And then therefore will be able to undo what Adam did? Genesis 3.15 raises the question and the rest of the Bible is written to answer it. So Adam and Eve hoped that one of their children would be the promised Messiah, as God named his wife Eve, the mother of all living. But Cain killed Abel, proving that Cain was not the offspring of the woman. He's actually an offspring of the serpent, and Cain's not the savior of the world because he's dead. The wait would continue much longer than we thought. Jesus, the Messiah, did not come in Genesis 4. By the time we get to Noah, um, Noah's dad lived in a generation where, I mean, the, the entire world is the offspring of the serpent. Everyone does what is evil, only evil continually. And yet, Noah's dad, whose name was Lamech, hoped that his son, Noah, might be the promised seed. 
So this is, this is why there's a genealogy, and then we get to Noah, because Noah uh, Noah's dad is hoping that he might be the offspring of the woman. He might be the promised seed. So listen to what Noah's dad names him. He names him Noah. Why? Saying, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief. So Lamech is hoping that Noah is the offspring of the woman. And while Noah did bring a type of salvation, he sinned in the garden, just like his great-grandpa Adam, proving that he was not the promised Messiah. He did bring a type of salvation, but he did not bring the one we are looking for. The promised Messiah was yet to come. So the Bible continues, in Genesis 12, God God calls a man Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your offspring. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so then the Bible zooms in and focuses on this one family for the rest of the Old Testament, the family of Israel. So this is a clue that the, the offspring of the woman, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come through Abraham's line. And that's why the whole Bible focuses on them. And as Abraham's family grows, we learn that the Savior of the world is going to be a king from the line of Judah. So as we're reading, we're, we're anxiously reading, who is the promised seed? Well, he's going to come through Abraham. Now he's going to come through Judah. And he's going to be a prophet greater than Moses. He's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever. But the wait is long. And the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is fierce. And so often throughout the Old Testament, the, the seed of the woman, the promised family of God, the, the chosen people, they, they side with the serpent. I mean, the, the brokenness in this world is longing for its Savior to come. Where is the seed of the woman? And thousands of years later, 2,000 years ago, this angel appears to a nobody, a virgin named Mary. And he tells her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, and she's going to give birth to a son, and she's going to call his name Jesus. And you know what the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh saves. So could this be? Could this be the seed of the woman? Could this be the promised Messiah? Well, Jesus' life is certainly not what we were expecting from the Messiah. We're expecting this conquering king to come, this serpent-slaying warrior to come and overthrow death and evil and sin and the curse. And instead, he came as a humble servant and died on the cross. I mean, he was, he was supposed to overthrow death, not be killed. He was, over, he was supposed to overthrow evil and suffering, not be overcome by it. But wait, there's more. Because on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering death. He defeated the grave, conquering sin. He paid the wage of sin in full, therefore raising from the dead. In Genesis 3.15, go back to it. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So through Jesus' death, he was bruised. He was wounded. He died. And yet raising from the dead, he crushed the serpent. And so the bruise was really just like a, he got wounded by doing that, but he crushed the snake. Taking from him the power of death and sin through his resurrection from the dead. So the New Testament is written to confirm that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, the one we've been waiting for ever since the world fell into sin and brokenness. 
Because Jesus is the new and better Adam. He's the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He is the promised seed of Abraham for all the nations of the earth are indeed blessed through him because in heaven there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing his praises for all of eternity. And he is the prophet greater than Moses for he is the word of God incarnate. God has spoken to us through his son. And he is the king from David's line sitting on his right hand of the, or sitting at the right hand of the Father, where he will be for all of eternity until every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is King. So the New Testament confirms that Jesus is the seed of the woman who has come to make all things new and to restore what was lost at the fall. We, Genesis 3.15 shapes the plot of the entire Bible, the entire world, are longing to know who is this seed of the woman. It's Jesus whose name is Yahweh saves. So as we close, I want to consider some bad news and some good news. First, for unbelievers. If you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have not repented of your sins and, and declared that Jesus is Lord, no matter how religious you are, no matter how good of a person you might think you are, the reality is you are aligned with the serpent. Your sins prove that you have joined the enemy and rebelled against the creator king of the universe. And if, if you die in your sins, your end will be the same as the serpent, eating dust for all of eternity. But here's the good news. If you repent of your rebellion against the creator of the universe, if you believe that you are guilty before holy God and that Jesus died a death in your place as a substitute for your sins, and that he is the only way back to the Father. He is the only way that your sins can be paid for. He is the only one who can overcome the curse of sin and death. No amount of your good works can overcome. And if you confess that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Because our God is in the business of adopting the seed of the serpent into the family of God. And for believers... For the rest of us who believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the reality is, the bad news is, we still live in a broken world. There's still brokenness in our relationship with God. There's still brokenness in our relationship with each other. Our hearts have not been made perfectly holy. And here's the good news. The comprehensive devastation of our sin hasn't just been paid for. It's not just being shoved under the rug. It is being comprehensively redeemed from beginning to end. So remember, remember how Genesis 3 ends. God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, kicks them out of his presence, kicks them into a world full of sin and death and brokenness. That's how the Bible begins. I consider how it ends. Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We're invited back into the Garden of Eden, a new and better Eden. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. The curse is reversed. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This cursed world is done away with and the new world is coming because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our hope. 
This is the salvation that Jesus Christ brings. He is the seed of the, warm, the woman, the serpent-slaying Savior of the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, as we consider the devastating effects of sin, Lord, forgive us for trifling with sin. Lord, forgive us for making light of our sin. Lord, as people who know the, the effects of sin because we believe that it put our, your, your son on the cross, Lord, forgive us for continuing in our sin. And yet, God, by your grace, thank you that your grace, even though our sins are many, your, your mercy is more. And to the praise of your glorious grace, Lord, we confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And so, Lord, we long for the day where what he has inaugurated will be consummated. We long for the day where our dwelling place will be with you. We long for the day where those we have been united to with Christ, we will officially have no more animosity with. We long for the day where these broken bodies are thrown off and we receive our resurrected bodies, where we will sing the praises of the Lamb who is slain for all of eternity with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is our hope. Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.